Thank you for tuning in to the Star Center podcast entitled Pediatric Care, Childhood, Adversity, and Resiliency Education. We bring together a community of pediatric providers working to address social determinants of health in their practices. We will share tested strategies, success stories, ideas on where to find community resources, and discuss clinical tools that are educational and practical to benefit your practice and families. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to our podcast. During this episode, we will be talking about protective factors and resiliency with a leading expert, Dr. Robert Sagi, who is a professor of pediatrics and medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine, where he directs the new Center for Community Engaged Medicine. He has served on national committees for the American Academy of Pediatrics and has been lead author on several important AAP policies. His extensive speaking and publication list include contributions to the prevention and treatment of child maltreatment and youth violence. Hello, I'm Dr. Narissa Bauer, a behavioral pediatrician based in Indianapolis, Indiana, and blogger at Let's Talk Kids Health. Today, I'm with Bob Sagi, and I'd like to ask him to give a quick introduction. Hi, thank you, Narissa. I'm Dr. Bob Sagi. I'm a pediatrician at Tufts Children's Hospital in Boston and I'm the director of the HOPE National Resource Center. I'm also at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. I'm so glad to have you on the show today, Bob. So I'll get started. My first question is, can you help us define protective factors and resiliency? Sure, protective factors are factors associated with promoting optimal growth and development. <clears throat> there are a lot of examples for pediatricians um, who are familiar with bright futures, Bright Futures includes assessments of children and family strength and assets. And many of us are also familiar with the Center for the Study of Social Policies, strengthening families, protective factors. Um, and those really correlate very well with Bright Futures. And they include concrete support in times of need, parent knowledge of child development and parenting, social connection, and the children's own developing social and emotional skills. And those are the sort of things that promote optimal child development. And resilience is really easy. So if you think about it, um, resilience is the ability to bounce back after stress. So imagine that I was holding two things in my hands and my right hand is an egg and in my left hand is a ping pong ball. So they're both white round things and I drop them both and they have different outcomes. So you would say, ping pong ball is resilient because you can't tell that it was dropped and the raw egg, not so much. So what we know is these positive experiences that we'll be talking about today help make a child resilient because unfortunately, we can't protect everybody from any adversity or any troubles in life. It's that it's psychological resilience that positive childhood experiences can help develop. I love that analogy and that's so clear. Thank you for sharing that. I will always think of a ping pong and an egg. So I saw in the September 2019 JAMA Pediatrics article that you examined the association between adult repo reported positive childhood experiences, adult reported social emotional support in light of ACE exposure levels or adverse childhood experiences. This absolutely suggests um, that positive childhood experiences are a protective factor based on your findings. How do these influence childhood development? 
Sure. Well, first of all, I want to say that that I'll get into the exact study, but the positive childhood experiences are things that uh, pediatricians and everyone else involved in child development has known about for a long time. For example, we know about those foundational relationships formed in the first year of life and that sense of attachment that we have with our parents that provides the, the template for our later adult relationships. And going on, attachment, engagement, cultural connection, these are all things people have talked about. So what we did in this study was we added questions to a populations survey done in Wisconsin known as the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance Survey. That survey included questions about adult health and also questions about adverse childhood experiences. We added seven questions about positive childhood experiences taken from a validated scale um, developed by a man named Dr. Unger in Nova Scotia. I just want to mention that um, Jennifer Jones and Christina Bethel and Jeff Lincolnback were instrumental in developing this, um, this survey and, and analyzing the results. But what we found was that the more positive childhood experiences that an adult recalled, the less likely they were to have depression or poor mental health. And then we took the population of Wisconsin and we divided them into those who had four or more ACEs, or in other words, a lot of childhood adversity, those who had no ACEs, and those who had in-between numbers. And then we looked and we found, not surprisingly, that the more ACEs a person had, the more likely they were to have depression or poor mental health, except if they have positive childhood experiences as well, the risk of depression and poor mental health plummeted. So among those adults who had four or more ACEs, if they had no one or two positive childhood experiences, six out of 10, 60% reported depression or poor mental health. Those who had six or seven of the seven possible positive childhood experiences only had 20%, one in five had depression and poor mental health. And for intermediate values of the number of ACEs they recalled or the number of positive childhood experiences recalled, they had intermediate results. So what we were able to show is that in a dose-dependent fashion, the positive childhood experiences protected adults who had also experienced adverse childhood experiences um, from depression and poor mental health. Yeah, I remember when I saw that study, actually I was sitting in an airport with Dr. Andy Gardner, mm -hmm. and he was so excited about this study and we were talking about it. Um, it's really cool that uh, that you've looked at that from a strengths-based model, because as with all of us as pediatricians, we want to do prevention, we want to look at the positives and the resiliency of families. Um, you know, that study, though, I'd like to kind of expand a little bit about it a little bit more. Um, so, as you had said and laid out, several positive childhood experiences can mitigate ACEs, and it was dose-dependent. But could you walk us through concrete examples in infancy, toddlerhood, uh, preschool, elementary, and adolescence that pot potentially general pediatricians can inquire about? Sure. And this is the beauty of, of healthy outcomes from positive experiences. As we talk about it, I think many pediatricians will already recognize that they kind of do this. So this is not something that's brand new and novel. It's just a new way to think about it and new science that shows how important it is. So in infancy, 
Um, the most important things that happen in babies in the first year of life is they learn about love. So attachment, early relational health, those all happen. So pediatricians can talk with parents about the back and forth or serve and return between parents and children about getting the babies, um, really having the parents enjoy all the things, the phenomenal growth in the first year of life where you start out um, basically knowing how to cry, eat, and poop. And by the time you're one year old, you're, you're mobile, you laugh, you giggle, you're able to um, involve your parents in your own world. And that's based on relational health. And there's so much information about the importance of that attachment. Toddlers, I, th I think developmentally, the characteristic of toddlers that always strikes me is that their physical abilities grow so fast and their sense of safety does not. Um, <laughs> so, so what you wanna do is make sure the toddlers have a safe and equitable environment to live, learn, and play. And so instead of telling the toddler all the time, no, 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 they try to make places where they can run around, whether it's outside, they can climb. Um, if they're at home, um, toddlers can spend a great deal of time just pouring water on the kitchen floor from one container to another. And I'm told that develops math skills. But if you think about it, what we can help parents understand is this natural curiosity that toddlers have creating an environment where they can explore it and they don't always have to hear no um, for that. And, and that sort of thing um, really helps with child development and those positive experiences, um, particularly when it's built on a strong relational base um, are, are so important. In elementary school kids, I think the focus there is really on social emotional development. All of us when we're two years old exhibit aggressive behaviors. We may um, steal a truck from another child in the sandbox or we may uh, run off with somebody else's doll or try to yell over someone else's talking. All that's like normal behavior at, at two years old. In elementary school, we develop a sense of other people. And psychologists call this the theory of mind. And that's, that sounds so fancy, doesn't it? But what yes. it really means is just the idea that just like I have a mind and I have my own will, so do you and you and you. And that's why when you watch um, elementary school students play in the playground, they seem to spend an inordinate amount of time discussing rules. And what they're really doing is they're learning social emotional competence. So the ability for peer directed play, for adults who can help them disentangle um, what's happening or little problem solving, that's one of I think the most important things. And parents can help that way. Because when a child comes to you with struggles, interpersonal struggles, which are really common, um, for parents to take a backseat and help the child come up with their own solution to it rather than calling the other child's parent or um, telling the child exactly what to say. Because remembering that the outcome of these really common squabbles in elementary school doesn't really matter. What really matters is the development in your child of social emotional competence. And as pediatricians, we often see families who talk to us about um, their child's development. They can be focused on academics. I think academics are, are really important. Um, I am very happy that I learned how to read. Um, but one of the things that the pediatricians can really help reinforce is this social emotional learning, particularly during elementary school, is fundamental as positive experiences that children can carry um, through with them. 
And again, these are all interrelated, of course, because as you develop social emotional competence, you have um, stronger peer relationships. And adolescence is a wonderful time. When you're 12, you're a child and you think and look like a child. When you're 20, you're a young adult. And there's a very bumpy path getting from here to there. But one thing that we know helps adolescents is a sense of engagement, that they matter. And that engagement can be helping their family. It can be having a job. It can be being um, in a sports team or um, doing art. But that sense of engagement, the sense that you matter and that you individually make a difference in the world is something that parents can help provide their teenagers to have those opportunities. And sure, you can do it faster or some other way, um, but having the teenager feel that someone relies on them, um, which really is that sense of mastery um, that you can have, is such an important positive experience that teenagers carry with them. And I think each of us as adults can recall times during our adolescence when we were important to someone or um, some part of our community. And it's that feeling of reliance and mattering that we carry with us through, through to adulthood. You know, Bob, thank you for that. I, I love especially how in each of those developmental stages, you pointed out the role that parents can have. And I've heard others talk about this as well, that, you know, what we can do in the moment at those well-child visits, we're doing surveillance, watching those interactions in the office, commenting, and then, you know, giving a commentary of what they're doing well, um, but also re recognizing that parents really sort of fall from become, like being a manager early on, like managing every moment and every movement that that child does, making sure they stay safe, then moving more into that co coaching role that you had mentioned, like helping with problem solving, but not necessarily doing things for them. And then also then as they move into adolescence, especially that late adolescent stage, then still being present, but functioning more as a consultant to that child or that teen. So that way throughout this whole thing, phase from birth through adolescence, parent is still involved, actively engaged, but at varying levels and making sure that the connection is always there. So thank you for that discussion. Thank you, Nerissa. Again, I just love all your research and everything that you're doing. So I pulled up one of your studies that was done in academic pediatrics in 2017 that showcased the HOPE framework. I think it's a really nice way to group what types of positive childhood experiences children and teens can have. Can you tell our listeners more about those four categories as well as the work that you're doing in that center? Sure. Well, first a shout out to my co-author, Charlene Harper-Brown, who's a sociologist who works with the Center for the Study of Social Policy in Washington. Um, so what we did is we looked at programs and interventions that actually worked that were evidence-based and supported um, children and youth. And then we tried to figure out, well, what did the participants experience during those programs? What are the common elements that <clears throat> the children and youth experienced? And what we found was there are really four buckets, which we now call the building blocks of hope. And when I say hope, I mean healthy outcomes from positive experiences. So the four building blocks, the first one is relationships safe, stable, nurturing relationships. And those begin in infancy, at the moment of birth, 
and we develop the relationship with our mother and with our parents, and that goes on. Then it becomes peer relationships, and later during adolescence and young adulthood, often romantic relationships. Those foundational relationships really matter. The second one is the environment. Children need safe, stable, and equitable environments to live, learn, and play. And some of that is really a physical environment. Children need food in their bellies. They need um, shelter. They need to have a school to go to where they feel physically safe. And some of it is emotional safety. They need to feel safe at home. And there's been a lot of research about something called a positive school environment, which happens beginning in preschool. And it's very simple, the way the administration teach, treats the teachers, the way the teachers treat each other, and the way the teachers treat the children all matters. And you can create a positive environment where children feel a sense of belonging. So that environment is really important. And we touched on it a little bit um, in that paper, but I become more and more convinced over time that getting children out in nature is part of that environment. Just all the sensory um, things, whether it's looking at the horizon and seeing to infinity, smelling something, seeing a little flower, a little bug, but the unpredictability and the sensory input from nature seems really important for our development. The third one, which we mentioned when we talked about adolescence, is engagement. All of us need to have a feeling that we matter. And this engagement can begin very early when you have a two-year-old um, hand you a diaper to help change the diaper of the, of the baby. Um, many really good school teachers will have classroom chores that the kids do. And it was only later in life that I realized the teacher probably could have done those herself, but it makes the classroom feel like a collaborative environment and the children matter. And of course, by the time you get to be teenagers, all the ways that teenagers engage in society are really important for developing that sense of mattering. So the third one is engagement. And the fourth one is opportunities for social emotional development. And this is a little more subtle only because much social emotional development happens through peer interaction. So it's up to the adults to create safe environments where children can um, play sports, play a game of pickup basketball, can sing together, can be involved in their faith-based organization. And all of those are places in addition to school where children can learn how to interact and develop those social emotional skills. As pediatricians, um, we know that some kids need a little bit of extra help. There are screening questions for social emotional development that we can use. And the importance of doing that so children get that social emotional development early when their brains are forming is so important. And that's why the AAP suggests screening for social emotional development. You know, um, thank you. That was really helpful. And I hope our listeners um, just come away with uh, that feel good feeling that you have, you know, when we're talking about all of these positive childhood experiences. Um, because, you know, I think in medicine, you know, we're trained to find what's wrong if the child's sick. And obviously that's really important to want to make sure you can catch those kids, especially when they're ill. But that on the flip side, these positive experiences, this resiliency, the um, relational health is just as important. You mentioned that about our, our training. Mm -hmm. So I'm a middle-aged guy, and if I go to a cardiologist, I'd be really unhappy if he said, you know, Bob, your heart beats okay 91% of the time. Congratulations. <laughs> so medical issues are a little bit different, but I think that parents are so sensitive about their parenting and about their own past 
We fail to acknowledge their successes, their resilience, all the things they're doing for their child. They may end up feeling judged and unable to really understand or act on any suggestions that we may have. So mm -hmm. it's really part of the, of the therapeutic relationship to recognize the whole person, all their strengths and assets, as well as their problems. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, just another question here in terms of, you know, we're living in the pandemic. We're now six months into it. There have been reports of increased child abuse and domestic violence. Families are filing for unemployment, losing health care. Can you speak to specific concerns about these issues and the current state that we're living in, in light of everything we just talked about? Yeah, you know, this is a really important question and one that certainly keeps, I'm a child abuse pediatrician and certainly keeps us awake at night because we know that family stress is clearly associated with child abuse and neglect. Um, so that the families that are economically stressed or other issues are more likely to hurt or neglect their children. And doing this work, I've come to realize there are very few actually evil people. They're mostly these people who reach their breaking point. So one of the things we've been concerned about is in this disruption, it probably causes more stress on families. But the paradox is we've seen less reporting. So the possibilities for less reporting are that it could simply be that children are so cocooned in their homes that other mandated reporters don't see them or they have no one to confide in. So there's a hidden epidemic of child abuse. Or it could be that at least in the initial stages of the pandemic, when there was generous unemployment insurance, that families were not feeling financial stress initially. Um, but what they were finding was they had more time together and they more often had another adult at home to help with the child. So it's possible that child abuse and neglect did really go down, um, at least in the early parts of the pandemic. And this of course makes us really concerned that some of the benefits um, are expiring. And unfortunately the pandemic does not seem to be expiring on what will happen next. The American Academy of Pediatrics received a, a grant from the Center for Disease Control, and we're now doing a survey of American families. We hope to have the first results out um, this fall to look and see what is going on in families, what has changed in their parenting patterns, and what stresses really need to be addressed. For pediatricians, I think that the important thing is to understand that when we ask about family stresses, it's, it's because we're concerned about the children as well as the parents, that financial stress, housing, food, heat, as winter comes, are all things that can push families over the edge, but are things that we may be able to help connect with. Right. So I think the, the take-home point from that is that we always must remain vigilant. I know pediatricians are really good at doing surveillance, monitoring for the, the overall family health, um, but thank you for that reminder, especially given the trend with those benefits that were happening early on and now as they're expiring, as you said, um, families may find themselves under much more stress again. There's one more practice that I've heard many pediatricians are doing now, and that's for older kids or teenagers to um, give them a confidential text address so that they can text message if they need some, some help or to reach out. And that's acknowledging that now when everyone's inside all the time, they may not be able to talk. And I think that one specific concern we have 
is if a child is is in a quarantine situation with someone who's abusing them or sexually abusing them, how do they reach out for help? So some pediatricians have, have um, done that. I think that I love the creativity. I love thinking about it and remembering to, to relate to the older child and adolescents in that personal way that we so easy to do when you're in the office and so hard to do when it's telemedicine. Right, right. Well, we're just about at the end, but you know, before we go, is there one thing that you want our listeners uh, to just be so excited about after they've heard you talk and go out to start doing today? What would that one thing be, that pearl? The one thing I want people to go away with, pediatricians in particular, is that when you start asking about those strengths and assets and problems people have overcome, it changes us and our relationships with our families because it is demoralizing to look at all these nice families that come in, ask them all these screening questions and only see their problems and the strength, not just to them, but to us as well, of really understanding what they've come through, what they're doing, what they're adding to their children's lives is just so inspiring. We have so much to learn and pediatrics is by far the best field in the world because we are so aligned with these young people who are growing and they have adults who really love them and care about them. And using a framework like hope, healthy outcomes from positive experiences allows us to touch on the reasons we do pediatrics and be effective in helping our families. Well, thank you so much, Bob. It was such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you, Nerissa. Thank you for tuning in to Pediatric Care, Childhood, Adversity, and Resiliency Education Podcast. For more information or to learn more about the resources referenced during this episode, please visit our Screening Technical Assistance and Resource Center website found on aap.org screening.